Marilyn, Behind the Icon, a dramatic series on the life of Marilyn Monroe. Our story continues with Episode 2, A Promise of Hope. The place is a secluded section of Santa Monica Beach. The time is July 1962, about three weeks after Marilyn Monroe was terminated from the film Something's Got to Give by 20th Century Fox Studios. It is also one month before Marilyn's death. It is a golden-hued summer day. Marilyn is posing in the surf for a photo essay to be published in Cosmopolitan magazine with photographer George Barris and his assistant. It's a warm summer's day, but the water's a little cold. <laughs> Can we stop, George? I want to warm up a little. Sure, Marilyn. Here's a dry towel. <gasps> Thanks. I love the beach. This beach. Do you know I've been coming here since I was a little girl? I used to love doing cartwheels in the sand. Well, you do seem more relaxed and open here. More than usual. That's beautiful, Marilyn. Turn your head toward the water. Just like that. Beautiful. Oh, gee. You know, I've done many more than a dozen shoots at the beach. But somehow, today feels a little different. You know, it's kind of funny. When I was a girl, I had a dream, or a kind of vision, really, of being a famous actress right here on the beach. And now it's happened. I've had fame. Now I want something more. Something more? When I was a girl, I used to think I'd go crazy like my mother. <sighs> Not anymore. Not after what happened last year in New York. What happened in New York, Marilyn? What are you, my psychoanalyst? <laughs> I have Dr. Greenson for that. <sighs> it was horrible. Just horrible. Oh, if it wasn't for Joe coming to rescue me, like a white knight. No, Marilyn, I, I meant what changed for you. Why do you feel different? Well, it's kind of simple, really. The fears and illusions I used to have, they feel like they're gone now. And I'm hopeful for my future. Got it. Well, that's a great one. I'm glad for you, Marilyn. Oh, me too. On the late afternoon of February 11, 1961, after discharge from Payne Whitney Psychiatric Hospital, Marilyn Monroe is admitted to the Neurological Institute of Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center on West 167th Street. She is placed in room 719. Over the next 23 days, Marilyn has time to mentally and emotionally heal and recuperate from her experience at Payne Whitney. Now, at Columbia Presbyterian, Joe comes every day and stays at Marilyn's side, as he promised. Marilyn sometimes sleeps for hours during the day. He watches the effect of new medications burning through her body. Marilyn writhes and moans, tossing on the bed. Nurses come in on and off and sponge her forehead and give her water with lemon to drink, which Marilyn likes. During his visits, Joe doesn't say a word. He sits quietly in silence, waiting until Marilyn is ready to talk. She occasionally looks over at him and then back out the window. He watches her process her recent experience patiently and silently for days. 
Marilyn is often awake at night, sometimes for hours, staring into the moonlight through the window. On Valentine's Day, Joe arrives with a big bouquet of roses. Marilyn turns to look over at him once and smiles, and then goes back to her thoughts. That week, Joe allows friends Norman and Hedda Rostin to visit. They don't stay long. Marilyn only lifts her hand weakly and smiles in greeting as the nurse wipes her brow. Joe sees the shock and sadness on their faces as they leave the room and go out the door. Then, two days later, Joe arrives for his daily visit. He finds Marilyn sitting up in bed writing in a notebook and drinking orange juice. The light has returned to her face and the mid-morning sun sparkles in her blonde hair. He stares at Marilyn in amazement and quietly sits down. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for giving me time. I'm beginning to look at things. I want to find out what it's all about. Life, love, the world, people, everything. Oh, Marilyn. I, uh, I, I wasn't sure if you, you... Oh, oh. Joe, don't you cry now. <sighs> Good morning, darling. Uh, how are you feeling today? Oh, much better today, Joe. Thank you. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say that. I can't believe all the get-well telegrams and cards and letters. You were keeping them from me. <laughs> Here's one from Marlin. It's really sweet. Uh, let me see. Oh, it's, it's a nice sentiment. Oh, please tell Norman and Hedda thank you for coming to see me. Well, you know, Marlin, it was a, a real wrestling match getting you out of that place. Shrink and the higher-ups really gave me a hard time. Well, I'm not surprised. That man who runs Payne Whitney was a high school principal type. Well, he told me I was a very, very sick girl and been very, very sick girl for many years. I think he looks down on his patients. He asked me how I could possibly work when I was depressed. He wondered if that interfered with my work. So I said... That's like saying how a ball player like DiMaggio could hit a ball when he was depressed. <laughs> Pretty silly, isn't it? I'll say. What a quack. You sure told him off. Though, so, uh, when do you think you'll be getting out of here? Well, the doctors say maybe the beginning of March. A few weeks. Oh, well, that's good. Because at the end of March, I'm scheduled to go to St. Petersburg, Florida for spring training. Well, I... I'd love for you to come with me. March is a great time to get out of New York and go to the beach in Florida. I would love to. On March 5th, Marilyn is discharged from Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. She appeared thinner, having lost much of the weight she had gained during the production of The Misfits and during her separation from her husband, Arthur Miller. Publicist Pat Newcomb and John Springer prepare for Marilyn's exit from the hospital. There's a huge crowd of reporters and photographers outside Marilyn, and another photographer shooting from a woman's apartment window across the street. John and I will flank you and get you to the car with the guards who can answer a few questions. 
You know the drill. We're all smiles. I know exactly what to say. I know you do, Marilyn. Turn on your charm, you'll be just fine. I'll turn into her. That's what I do. You look marvelous, Marilyn. Really beautiful. That silk blouse is very thin, though. Won't you need your coat? No. I want them to see me all in white. Okay. No mink. It's a short walk to the car. We won't be outside long. Show them how marvelous and trim you look. The entourage of Newcomb and Springer creates a human shield around Marilyn as they hold her by the arms, leading Marilyn to an awaiting Lincoln Continental. The car is over there, Marilyn. Marilyn, how do you feel? I feel wonderful, thank you. I had a nice rest. In the calamity, some reporters are pinned against Marilyn's awaiting car. Holding her white gloves in hand, Marilyn smiles radiantly and waves to the crowd as she and Pat climb into the back seat of the car. It slowly drives away, inching through the crowd of reporters. Later, Marilyn commented to friend Susan Strasberg, I can't even have a nervous breakdown in private. During the fourth week in March, Marilyn and Joe arrive at Tampa International Airport and head to North Reddington Beach on the coast. The St. Petersburg Times announces, Marilyn Monroe, pale of figure and serene in the face of a crowd of gaping onlookers, played a signal radiance match with the Florida Sun yesterday afternoon. There is no doubt who outshone whom. For propriety, the couple register in separate guest rooms across from each other in the main building of the exclusive Tides Resort and Bath Club on North Reddington Beach on the Gulf of Mexico. However, it's clear to everyone that they're together as a couple. During the day, the couple lounge under one of the many blue canvas cabanas lining the property's shore. As word spreads of their presence, curious residents from the neighboring beach communities pass by and stare. When large crowds flock the public beach for a glimpse of the actress and retired baseball player, the resort's management relocates the couple to the rooftop for more private sunbathing. Kids show up with baseballs and toss them up to DiMaggio. He signs his name and tosses the balls back down to the kids. Later, Marilyn accompanies Joe as he coaches Yankees spring training at Crescent Lake Park and Al Lang Stadium in nearby St. Petersburg. When alone together, they stroll hand in hand on the beach. The cabana is an all-day rental, sir. We are going for a stroll on the beach. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. Uh, please bring the lady a... Uh, uh, an avocado, please, an iced tea with two lemons, please. Yes, ma'am. I'll, uh, I'll have a glass of orange juice. Oh, Joe, your ulcer. Oh, please bring him decaffeinated iced tea, please. Yes, ma'am. The sound of this earth is so soothing, Joe. Thanks for bringing me to Florida. Very different from Santa Monica Beach and Redondo Beach where I used to go as a kid. Oh, Joe, what's that? Ah, look, it's a, it's a horseshoe crab. Look, see it, oh, look. poor thing. Oh, Joe, put it back in the sea. Whoa, whoa, okay, okay. Ah, uh, uh, <laughs> there he goes. Ah. <laughs> uh, Ah, oh, I'm so glad you, you came along with me. So, uh, 
What's your plan when we return home? Well, um, Fox wanted me to do the film Goodbye Charlie, but I'm not going to do it. I don't like the idea of playing a man in a woman's body. It just doesn't seem feminine. A man in a woman's body? Sounds like a bunch of BS. Well, it's not Tennessee Williams. Spiros Gorsis released me from the film so I could do Rain for NBC. Y you mentioned that before. Sounds like something you seem more interested in doing. Oh, I am. It's a television adaptation of Somerset Mines play about passengers on a ship stranded on an island in the South Pacific. A missionary meets a prostitute named Sadie Thompson, that's my role, and he vows to redeem her. Frederick March has agreed to play the missionary, but my mother bought his old piano when I lived with her. I took lessons on it. But the girl is a prostitute. Are you sure about this? I've always wanted to play Sadie Thompson, Joe. She's a survivor. That's how I see it. Both Joan Crawford and Rita Hayworth had played her on screen. Yeah, well, television is the new medium, Marilyn. Lucille Ball's been successful. Loretta Young is doing TV. So is Donna Reed. And it's going to be in color. And Revlon is a sponsor. I told NBC I would tape the show in two conditions. One, that Lee Strasberg would have artistic control over the production. And two, that Frederick March would be my leading man. Richard Burton may also agree to be in it. Well, he's performing at the Majestic with Julie Andrews and Camelot. Whew. Sounds like a great cast. We shoot for four weeks in the studio in Brooklyn. You know Rod Sterling from The Twilight Zone? Well, he's writing the script. But, Joe, the best part is that NBC is giving me the final control over the producer, the director, the script, the set designer, and wardrobe designer. And the producer is a woman, and Marlon. Well, I support you, darling. Television sounds better than dealing with those bastards at Fox. Columnist Ward Morehouse writes about Marilyn's plans. My hope is Marilyn Monroe will have the triumph of her life as the put-upon but indestructible Sadie Thompson, and that after she conquers television, she will go on to conquer Broadway. Mental health professional and Marilyn Monroe biography author Gary Vitaco Robles. During my research for ICON, I interviewed Jason Dow, who shared with me a wonderful recollection of his meeting Marilyn at the historic Tides Resort when he was 13 years old. Joe, look at the boy building a sandcastle over there. I'm going to talk with him. Yeah, uh, don't be long, honey. Uh, the Cabana boy's bringing us breakfast. I won't. Sure looks like a wonderful sandcastle you're making. You're a terrific builder. Are you here at the beach with your family? Yeah, my parents brought us. They read about you coming to town in the papers and heard you were staying here at the Tides. Oh. We don't get many important people here. I'm not all that important, really. My parents say you are. I think you are. We went to the drive-in in our station wagon to see you in Some Like It Hot. It was kind of funny. Especially the ending. <laughs> really? What's your name? Jason. Jason Dow. How old are you? Thirteen. What do you and your family like to do together at the beach? We collect shells, 
eat hot dogs. My sisters listen to Cousin Brucey's Top 40 Countdown on the radio and talk a lot. I like to build sandcastles. Pass me that bucket of sand? Oh, sure. Here you go. Your tower seems to be leaning a little. It's okay. I made a strong foundation first. That's smart. Is it okay if I place this pink shell on the top of the tower? Sure. Yeah, that's swell. <laughs> what would you like to be when you're a grown-up? I don't know for sure. Maybe a builder. I think you'd be a terrific builder. Or an architect someday. You think the shell looks better standing up, Jason? Yeah, kind of does. Hey, can I have one of your pictures? Signed with your autograph? Sure. Uh, I don't have a picture, but I can give you an autograph. I'll leave it with the man at the front desk of the hotel. You're swell. Thank you, ma'am. The tide's coming in. Oh, quick! Dig a big trench at the front of the castle. Hurry! What? Okay. Whoa! Yeah! The ditch saved it! Just got a little messed up. Oh! <laughs> Mama, Mama! My castle washed away! Norma Jean! Come here! You're too close to the water! <coughs> Norman! <coughs> I, I can't swim anymore. I've got you. Take a deep breath and lean back. Marilyn, grab onto the boat. Something's wrong. Marilyn, hey. Marilyn, are, are you okay? What? Yes. I'm all right. I think you've had enough beach for today. But I promised Jason an autograph. When the romantic holiday ends on April 2nd, Marilyn and Joe take a red-eye flight back to LaGuardia Airport in New York, where DiMaggio frequently spends the night at her apartment, keeping a pair of his pajamas in her bedroom dresser drawer. He uses the kitchen service entrance to regularly come and go. A week later, the couple attends the opening game of baseball season between the Yankees and the Minnesota Twins at the New York Yankee Stadium. As the guests of co-owner Dan Topping and his wife, Marilyn and DiMaggio sit in the press box and attract media attention. At the 33rd Academy Awards ceremony on April 17th, Master of Ceremonies Bob Hope dedicates the Song of the Year nominee, the second time around, to Marilyn and Joe. When Marilyn travels from Los Angeles to New York later in the year, the plane she is flying on encounters problems upon takeoff. Something's wrong. Oh my. Everyone, please remain calm. Please make sure your seatbelts are fastened. Hello, Los Angeles Tower. We are headed back to LAX. Roger that. Well, Cap, you made the right call in time. Uh, I'm not going down in history as the pilot who crashed the plane with Marilyn Monroe on board. Having faced death at the hand of machinery, and not her own, a shaken Marilyn immediately sends a Western Union telegram to DiMaggio at the Lexington Hotel, where he awaited her arrival in the city. Dear Dad, darling, airplane developed engine trouble, plus oil ran out of the same plane, so we had to turn back and land in L.A. Leaving again on another plane at 5 a.m. Arrived New York, 1 p.m. When plane was in trouble, I thought about two things. You and changing my will. I love you. I think more than ever. 
Marilyn's publicist, Lois Weber-Smith, said that Marilyn always knew where she stood with Joe DiMaggio. He was always there for Marilyn. She could always call on him, lean on him, depend on him, be certain of him. In their later years, Joe provided a great feeling of comfort to Marilyn. Reciprocally, Marilyn provided comfort to both Joe and his son, Joe Jr., as illustrated in DiMaggio's letter to her. Darling, I've uh, talked to Joe Jr. quite a bit this month, trying to help resolve some of his, his present problems. You've been quite a help to me in so much as discussing Joe's affairs, and dear, I want to thank you beyond words for helping relieve my mind. Shortly after Marilyn's death, an unfinished note to Joe was found among her possessions. In her unmistakable slanted bubble handwriting, Marilyn wrote, Dear Joe, if I can only succeed in making you happy, I will have succeeded in the biggest and most difficult thing that there is. That is, to make one person completely happy. Your happiness means my happiness. The note was unfinished. In the end, DiMaggio remained Marilyn's loyal partner and never remarried. For two decades, he sent a dozen red roses to her crypt three times per week. When DiMaggio neared the end of his life, he reportedly said, I'll finally reunite with Marilyn. For the facts behind the scenes portrayed in this episode, be sure to listen to our companion podcast, Norma Jean, Discovering Truths, a discussion around the historical events drawn from Marilyn's life, which we are using to create the dramatic narrative in every episode. For the complete experience of our series, visit our website at BehindTheIcon.com where you can listen to every episode and also follow the story through historical photographs, videos, and exclusive anecdotes. You can subscribe on the website to join our community and get special updates about the series. On Facebook, search Marilyn Behind the Icon and stay connected to our social posts. Subscribe to the audio series of Marilyn Behind the Icon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or where you're listening now. We'd love for you to give us a review or rating if you're enjoying what you're hearing. 
You can also support the show and the production by checking out the offers from the advertisers and sponsors you hear in the show or find on our website. This dramatic audio series is based on the two-volume biography by author Gary Vitaco Robles titled Icon, The Life, Times, and Films of Marilyn Monroe.